0: Hey, we're going to jump into this morning's message in just a a, a minute, but I I wanted you to not only get the update on what is going on around the world so that we can give uh, generously and pray fervently uh, for those needs around the world, but there's still obviously many, many needs in our community. And so I wanted you to hear uh, a little update from one of our uh, dear, dear friends and partners in ministry, uh, 180 Community Ministry. So I want to invite Jake and Allison to come on up some old friends there, and uh, God has been doing some great things. Um, you can step right up here, remember? You just come right up here. <laughs> this is where I, this is where I, I, I stand. Know. I stand right
1: here. You do. Um, so, yeah, tell us what's going on and, and how yeah. we can be praying or where we can be involved with um, um, what God is doing. Yeah, I miss you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, we miss you guys. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been a while. <laughs> There's been... Um, So much journey from like there to here, Um, and there's no way to share it all in just a couple minutes. So, Um, But I thought I'd just start with a little story. Um, As you guys know, 180 has kind of been a part of our lives. We've been at the 180 for almost 20 years. We're on our 20th year now at 180, which is crazy. Um, And we've been there every step of the way. And a part of our, our ministry at 180 has always included a yearly trip to Santa Cruz, and so we did that a few weeks ago. And Santa Cruz, we go and we do the boardwalk. That's always kind of the thing. We go to the beach one day, we go to the boardwalk the next day. And so they get the beach out of their system and then they go to the boardwalk. And, and we take these kids and you guys, they're street kids. I mean, they're hood rats. Like They, they are um, not compatible with most public places, a lot of these kids. And so um, we love them. They're beautiful, but they just do different things. And so we on our boardwalk day... Uh, we've got the boardwalk, right? And it's like finally opened up and the rides are going. You hear people screaming and stuff. And we've got our little beach base camp and and my job was to sit at the beach base camp. And there's one kid who wants nothing to do with the boardwalk. He's just standing there. And you know how the ocean when it's like receding, the waves are kind of pounding the the, the the sand. And as it recedes, if you're standing in a certain place, your feet will like sink as the power of the ocean kind of pulls the sand around your feet. You guys know what I'm yes. talking about? It's this amazing feeling. And this kid stood there, I kid you not, for like two hours, like just watching his feet, and, and as I talked to him a little bit later, it's the first time he's seen the ocean, um, first time he's ever been there, first time he's touched it, um, and it just reminded me how big God is and how awesome this ministry is at 180. We get the opportunity to reveal a new world to these kids, and it reminded me of this passage, Psalm 89, 8 through 9, who is like you, Lord God Almighty. We need to hear this, you guys. You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Right? This revelation that God is at work, and he's doing these amazing things. And so the last couple years of our lives, last couple years of 180, have really been defined by watching God work his wonders, right, and reveal himself to us in that way. Allie's going to share um, just kind of what's been happening. There's, so, there's too much, but she'll share the highlights.
2: In like a minute, yeah. right? <laughs> Uh, So, yes, we just wanted to say, first of all, thank you. We miss you guys. The seed that you planted with 180 has turned into a garden and with multi, like different flowers and trees. And and so we just get to share a little bit of what that's looking like right now. So during COVID, our whole team has repurposed. We did um, a distance learning with First Baptist. Uh, So, we weren't seeing as many teenagers, we were going to the parks, we were going to their homes, we weren't actually seeing them in the center. And I think about that song, The Goodness of God is Running After Me. A lot of our kids who were stuck in their homes, apartments, apartments with multiple people, um, they didn't experience God running after them. I mean, you actually had to go find them. The goodness of God had to present itself to them. So our team, we were repurposed, we were doing things at, at the teen center with um, little kids helping to teach them, which was crazy. Um, But then also we were going to their homes, delivering care packages. Our counselors, we were one of the few counseling centers that were open all through COVID, not just doing Zoom and phone calls, but with safe practices still meeting with kids. And so schools, churches um, were just giving us referrals. So some of these kids were going to their home. They're already in poverty. They're already... Um, just really struggling. We show up at their house and they've lost a parent. And so we'll just play a board game on their front yard. We started bringing blankets and lawn chairs or we'd go for walks around the neighborhood. Nobody else was out because really you're not supposed to be out. But these kids, they (laughs) cannot be in their apartment by themselves just crying. We show up at one house and a mom had decided she was done. So she just abandoned her family and the dad's trying to like piece it together and the kids are just sobbing. And The goodness of God had to go to them, you know? And so that's really, we as Christians, that is our privilege to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a time of a pandemic, in a crisis, um, and just every day. So that's really what our counseling, what our team, what you all have done together is respond in this time of need. Um, As a byproduct of being one of the few agencies that's really out meeting with kids, um, the school district had one of our friends, he, he called and he said, we got all this money. Um, can you just hire a thousand, <laughs> maybe not a thousand. A lot of counselors will just put you in every single school. Well, we couldn't do that. But it's just that feeling of, we want to partner with you. We know that you will do... We don't have all the red tape that the school district had. We could actually just go to their schools. Um, and so we continue to serve people. I mean, suicide is... I mean, ideation, it's on the rise. Depression's on the rise. Divorce, I mean, it's just really tough out there right now, and I know you all know that. So our mental health um, clinicians, our needs have gone, that's the part that I was highlighting, has grown. We are now in four different districts, and Galt Unified, they didn't have any mental health services, and they've hired us to do all of their high schools, which as... um, that's a lot of kids. So here, you, as you can see, 180, the seed that you have planted. I mean, we're, we're, we're working with kids. We've reopened the teen center. So our old kids are coming back. Um, new kids are coming back. They are crazy off the hook. Uh, They don't even know what to do with themselves, and we love being there, being the recipients of whatever God's bringing to us, and then responding as um, God grants us permission, favor, and creativity, because that's really been this last year. So that's kind of what the Teen Center adventures, because that's the Santa Cruz trip, and then the mental health
1: part. Yeah, just... The, the last thing that we kind of want to highlight is the 180 community side. So First Baptist did this huge fundraising push a few years back. And well, it wasn't really a fundraising push. We, were, we set out to start a community center in the old First Baptist Church building. Um, and again, the journey from there to here has been long. It's been hard uh, at times. Uh, at times it's been brutal. Uh, it's, it's taxed us. Um, but we have seen God's goodness and God's faithfulness, right? The God of, of the roaring waves has shown up in just dramatic ways. So a lot of the things I want you guys to know that we originally set out to do in that community center are taking place. There's a preschool. You guys heard about that a few weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, they just opened up this last week. Um, they're starting to take enrollment. It's awesome. Um, the, the idea of being there and present for a neighborhood, that has expanded in dramatic ways. There are four intentional neighboring locations now. Uh, those are growing. We've got after-school programs starting up. Houses or apartments yeah. in, yep. in yeah. those neighborhoods where people are living in exactly. missionaries. Yeah. Yep, so we own one house. There are three others that we rent and neighborhood missionaries are doing work in these neighborhoods exactly where they need to be especially during the last couple of years, right? Right there in those neighborhoods. And then also as a part of that, originally we gathered together a community of people just to pray, to pray over what God might do uh, on the east side of Lodi and some of our broken neighborhoods. And that group just continued to pray and continued to pray. And we believe that that energy, right? That Holy Spirit energy continued to bolster all of these movements locally. Uh, that has grown into... Uh, a little church, a little church plant uh, called Kingdom Community. It meets at the One Eighty. Um, One Eighty has always been at its best when there's been a church there, like a local church. Lots of lots of local church startups have started at One Eighty over the years. Now we've got kind of our own, and really it provides a place. I mean, we've got kids that used to attend the 180 way back in the early days, uh, 20 years ago. Like, one of the first kids that walked through the doors of the 180 is now bringing his family to church at 180, and that's a place that he feels safe and and comfortable. Um, We call it Kingdom Community. The goal, again, is to provide a place for our our kind of local 180 kids to former 180 kids, and yeah, their families to come and be a part of it, but then also for local folks to find mission. Because 180 is connected not only with our own ministry, but lots and lots of local missions taking place, and we're able to provide, I think, a really neat opportunity for people to, to explore and discover ways to get involved in local community mission. Awesome. And so that's kind of what's happening there.
0: Awesome, yeah. awesome. Thanks so much, you guys. And sorry to you know, kind of rush no, you through all, all that. Um, if, you, if you didn't know, and, and you've maybe heard through the years, uh, the first 19 years, just kind of logistically, uh, 180 ministries kind of existed under the umbrella of First Baptist Church, um, but as they've grown and flourished uh, this past year, they've become independent. Um, God is clearly blessing that in so many ways. So we maintain that partnership, but we celebrate uh, your independence, and we are here um, to love and to serve together with one another. And um, so, would you just join me in a, a quick word of prayer um, for that ministry right here in our town? So, Lord, thank you so much. I thank you for Jake and Allie, and I thank you for um, the journey of uh, following you. I thank you for the team that you've surrounded them with, um, and I thank you for the work of 180 um, in just the, the some of the most needy places right here in our community with the message of love and grace and truth, and I pray, Lord, that you would give them all that they need, supply their needs. I pray, Lord, that the, the things that they're doing would just flourish for your kingdom, um, Lord, that kingdom community would just thrive and people would see your light, that the counseling services, the teen center, the adventures, all those things would be used to your glory, and we commit our brother and sister to you. Tonight, in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, thanks so much, Jacob. Appreciate that. I have the microphone. <laughs> All right. Well, awesome. Thanks so much. Hey, as you came in this morning, hopefully you got uh, some message notes. Now would be the time to grab those out. Uh, grab your Bible because today, um, after a little six-week pause, uh, we are jumping back into a study that we began several months ago in the book of Romans. And we called this a series in Romans, a letter that changed the world. And you may recall when we first started talking about Romans, uh, we suggested that Paul's in Inspired letter to this young group of of Christians, this upstart church in the very heart of the Roman Empire, just might be the most important document uh, that we have to describe the doctrine and the Christian life. And this most important document inside the most important book of all times really focuses on kind of one main thing. This letter that changed the world. Deals with a lot of issues, but all of them circle around this one idea. The letter that changed the world is relentlessly focused on the gospel or the good news of Jesus. You may remember that, that Paul says that I believe the gospel is the power of God. Romans one sixteen says, for I am not ashamed uh, of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And so if you read that, that's really interesting because Paul doesn't say, I believe the gospel. You know, teaches us about the power of God. I don't believe the gospel you know, points us to the power of God. The gospel is not three easy steps to discover the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. And so that's a, that's a big deal. And Paul takes these 16 chapters in the book of Romans to unpack uh, what that is all about so that we can understand it and live it out. Now everyone agrees uh there's you know some different outlines for the book of Romans but everyone agrees that Romans can essentially be broken up into two kind of main sections. So chapters 1 through 11 which we covered earlier this year, chapters 1 through 11 are all about kind of this a systematic in-depth theological uh, description of what the gospel is. It's the deep theology of it. Then you get to chapter 12, where we're beginning today, and you see that Paul takes a hard turn in the way that he writes this letter. And now he begins to focus in a much more practical way on kind of the difference that the gospel makes in everyday life. So first it's kind of 11 chapters of deeply theological, and then he turns this corner to become more practical about living it out. And the opening word of Romans 12 is actually a really important word in understanding the whole flow of the book of Romans. Just this one word at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, and that is the word therefore. Therefore is the first word of Romans 12 that we're gonna look at um, today. Now, maybe you were taught when you studied the Bible. Has anybody ever been taught when you come to the word therefore in the Bible study, what are you supposed to ask? What is it? What's it there for? So clearly... That's an important question um, to ask here as we think about this idea of what is, um, what is that word therefore. And what we see is that it ties together this deeply theological with this intensely practical in a way that says, this is now in light of all of the good news of Jesus, therefore this is how a believer lives. This is the way you put this stuff into practice. And that's what we're gonna be digging into for these next uh, six, eight weeks as we finish up uh, our study in Romans. So Paul begins these five uh, practical chapters, 12 through 16, uh, focused on how the Christian life um, uh, is to be lived by addressing a question that I would say that pretty much every single person in this room has asked at least at some time. Every person watching in the gym, every person online has some time in their life Ask this question that Paul deals with, and the question is this God, what is your will for my life? What, God, what am I supposed to do? What is your will for my life? uh, How do I, it's all so confusing. What decision do I make? I don't know what fork in the road to choose. In fact, I came across this little poem. Maybe you would relate uh, to this little uh, poem from Dr. Seuss that goes like this. Did I ever tell you about the young Zod who came to two signs at the fork in the road? One said to place one and the other place two. So the Zod had to make up his mind what to do. Well, the Zod scratched his head and his chin and his pants, and he said to himself, I'll be taking a chance. If I go to place one, now that place may be hot. So how do I know if I'll like it or not? On the other hand, though, if I'll be sort of a fool if I go to place two and I find it's too cool. In that case, I may catch a chill and turn blue. So maybe place one is the best, not place two. But then again, what if place one is too high? I might catch a terrible earache and die. So place two may be best. On the other hand, though, what happens to me if place two is too low? I might get some strange pain in my toe. So place one may be best. And he started to go. Then he stopped and he said, on the other hand, though, On the other hand, other hand, other hand, though, for 36 hours and a half, that poor zode made starts and made stops at the fork in the road, saying, don't take a chance. No, you may not be right. Then he got an idea that was wonderfully bright. Play safe, cried the zode. I'll play safe. I'm no dunce. I'll simply start out for both places at once. And that's how the zode, who would not take a chance, got no place at all with a split in his pants. And I don't know about you, but I relate to that when it comes to making um, some of those decisions. So as Romans 12 turns from the theological uh, to the practical, um, these first few verses really are so powerful. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 that we're looking at today, so powerful. Um, and it, it begins to sort of answer this question, how do we not only know, but how do we walk in and live in a way that knows and understands God's good pleasing and perfect Well, So that's what we're going to look at today. Although I want to warn you that it may be a little bit different than uh, you normally hear when you hear talked about uh, kind of how do you discover um, God's will, because there are a lot of common misconceptions out there about God's will. Let's just start by kind of calling out some of those misconceptions. Uh, The first one is this, is that God's will is a dot. There's this idea out there that many Christians live under that God's will is this dot, and what I mean by that is it's this one very specific, just only one answer, and I have to find that if I want to know God's plan for me. I've got to go to just the right school. I've got to take just the right job. I've got to live in just the right uh, community. I've got to marry that one person. I've got to live in or start and serve in just the perfect ministry. And honestly, I, honestly, I think so many Christians live their life under this burden that somehow uh, God's will is like this hidden treasure. And unless you decipher all the clues and figure it all out, somehow you are going to miss God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. The problem with that is, for one, the burden that it places on us, it's not biblical, it's also it's just illogical to think about that. I I was thinking, even if you take this idea that um, of all the people in the world, there is one, 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 one perfect person for you to marry, right? There's just one person in the whole world for you to marry. So think that through. Let's just say 500 years ago, some poor guy misses the dot and he marries the wrong person. And then that girl, now she's messed up. And so she marries the wrong man. And then that guy marries the wrong girl. And that girl marries the wrong guy. And on and on it goes. And so basically look around. Everyone here is married to the wrong person. And that's not true. God's will for you to be married to is the person that you're married to, right? That is God's will. God's will is not this hidden treasure that somehow we're gonna, you know, he's just waiting for us to, to, to miss it. God's will is, is not a dot. Um, uh, God's will is also not a, a feeling. God's will is not a feeling. You hear Christians say this all the time. I just feel like God wants me to do this or I feel like God is telling me to, to do that. The biggest problem, again, not only is that not a a biblical thing, but that's unreliable. If you are building your spiritual life and, and finding God's will on how you feel, you will be misled. I know in my life, my feelings are not reliable. They go up, sometimes they are, but often they're not right? Because they go up and down based on the circumstances and how I'm feeling and did I get a good night's sleep and how are things at work? How are things at home? And all of those things. And so to say God's will is I just am going to kind of feel it, boy, we open ourselves up to a lot of deception. A third misconception is that God's will is a system, right? If I do these certain things, that's going to reveal God's will. Anybody remember, say, when you were, uh, Before you were married, if you were like me, uh, you would say, okay, I'm going to call this girl, and if she picks up on the third ring, I'm going to ask her out. Right? Until we make kind of this system. I actually had that experience just this week. I said, Lord, if it is your will for me to have a chocolate donut this morning, um, when I drive by the donut shop, there's going to be a spot right in the front for that. Sure enough, the fourth time around the block, there it was, right in the very front. (laughs) which is not true, but see, God's will is is not a system like that. It's not some punch in this and punch in that, and God spits out his will. You know, a lot of people point to, if you, you know this story, there's an Old Testament story about Gideon who lays out this fleece, and we hold this up as this is some great model that we're to follow. The reality is, in the story of Gideon, his fleece is a sign of weakness. His fleece is a sign of fear and an inability to just trust God and do what was right in the first place. And so, for many Christians, the way that we approach God's will, if you want to just track with me on this for a minute, is actually a very pagan approach. Because many of the both ancient and modern pagan religions are very much about how do I divine God's will? How do I kind of figure it all out? So that's why we have astrology, so that the stars will tell me the will. And in ancient religions, and some modern ones even around the world today, you know, they'll sacrifice an animal and look at the insides of it to determine God's will, or they'll spin an arrow, or they'll play a Ouija board or something like that. And the reality is, is that's a very pagan way to approach uh, those, that's just empty superstitions. Because you see, when it comes to really the way I see the scripture describing God's will, it's not a dot, it's not a feeling, it's not some little system that you can work out. God's will is a relationship. God's will for your life and mine is a relationship with him. Can I just share a scripture with you that I can't tell you how many times this simple little verse has made a huge difference for me when it comes to some of those decisions and how do you know the right thing to do? Psalm 37.4, it's a great scripture. I encourage you to, to even commit it to memory. It says this, delight yourself or take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, if you read Psalm thirty-seven, four, the whole, read Psalm thirty-seven, the whole thing. That's just one verse, a little, you know, even a little bit out of context. But the whole of Psalm thirty-four is all about delight yourself in Him, trust in Him, wait patiently for Him, be in a close relationship with Him, and then what happens is God will pops to the surface, right? Because a heart that is delighting in the Lord in that relationship, that says my first thing to do is not figure out some system, my first thing is to love and delight in the Lord. You know what happened is my heart begins to become transformed. And then God says, do the desires of your heart because your heart will be in line with mine. Now, now, To say that God's will is a relationship, some people may say that's kind of a simplistic approach, but I actually really believe that is the same kind of thinking that Paul gives to us as he starts off this practical section about living out the gospel message when he gets to uh, Romans chapter 12, verse one. So you might wanna open up your Bible. In fact, I encourage you to do that. Um, Just a little challenge to you. If you have never memorized these verses before, Um, These are are maybe a great first two verses to memorize. If you've never uh, memorized scripture before, um, you could do it, and these are a couple of great ones. So let's just, uh, let me read these to us, and then let's pull them apart a little bit. Romans 12, verse one says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, that is so good. I love that stuff. And so let's just pull that apart. Let's take a deeper look into the kind of relationship that I think Paul is suggesting and scripture is suggesting. uh, If we're going to be the kind of people that can get to where we can test and approve God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, this is the kind of relationship that leads us towards that. Um, And just a couple points. Um, The first one is this, is that kind of relationship has to be built on the foundation of God's mercy. That kind of relationship has to be built on the foundation of God's mercy and grace. Right? And so um, it begins by saying, therefore, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to do these things. So God's mercy is the foundation. Now, I can't emphasize this foundation of God's mercy and grace enough. And this idea, the way Romans is set up where you have the theological and then the practical is actually very common, especially to the way that Paul writes letters. Time and time again, he says, you know, in all, the, all those different books, before you get to the do's and don'ts and this is how you live your life, he says, this is whose you are. This is who you belong to. This is the good news of Jesus. This is God's grace. These are the things that you build your life upon long before you ever get to the do's and the don'ts. In fact, I don't want to put words in Paul's mouth, but I would suggest that if you just opened up your Bible and said, I'm going to begin with Romans chapter 12 without any foundation for the gospel message, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Chapter 12 gets its foundation from the mercy and grace that's described to us in these 11 chapters. And remember what those first 11 chapters are about. Just real quickly, Paul begins by building this case for the fact that all people are sinful. And in one way or another, all of us do and think and and, uh, act out things that keep us away from, from, from God. And that sin not only separates us from God, but that sin leads to death spiritual and ultimately physical death as well. But there's this good news that comes in and says, "Well, while you, know, well, you could never kind of work your way up to God, God's grace comes in the person of Jesus Christ who laid down his life. And by faith, you place your faith in him and you're, not only your sins are forgiven, but you're made right with God. Remember, we spoke, talked weeks about the righteousness of God. And, and then not only are you made right with him, but then you, you know, he talks about how you can be filled with his spirit and nothing can separate you from his love all of this stuff about the mercy and grace of God. And before you think about the do's and don'ts of the Christian life, it has to be built on the foundation of God's mercy, right? Before we can can get to the behaviors of chapters 12 through 16, we can't really do that until chapters one through 11 becomes the very air that we breathe. You know, I think sometimes people think this, they think that the the gospel, that that gospel message is, is like the, it's like the, the entry point into Christianity. You get your foot in the door with the, you know, the, the gospel message, and then from there, you kind of take it. That is not true. The gospel is the Christian life, and we're meant to live it, and that's how Paul begins this whole thing. So he says, I want you to be in this relationship where you can contest and approve and know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, and I urge you to do it in view of God's mercy. You know what happens? It helps us understand God more. You know what else it does? It helps us to be more gracious to other people, right? And our world could use that probably now more than ever, that I show grace to you and you show grace to me and that we show grace to one another. So he says, build on the foundation of God's mercy. Second thing, though, as he keeps going, Paul recognizes it, it's more than just that. He says, you also have to devote your life to really surrendering to Christ. You devote, um, your life, uh, your, you devote yourself to surrendering your life to Christ. And he gives us three specific ways to do that. He says, offer your body as a living sacrifice. Don't conform to the pattern of the world and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So let's look at those real quick. First of all, Paul says, you devote yourself to, your, to Christ by Offering your body as a living sacrifice. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Now that may surprise some of us because especially around here, we talk a lot about offer your heart to God, right? Offer your mind to God, offer your soul to God and those things are important. But Paul very intentionally, I believe, says offer your body and body very explicitly refers to this physical body that we are living in. And this is huge that he would say offering your body, your physical life to to Christ. It's a a big deal because uh, he also teaches us that our body is actually a temple of the Holy Spirit. God actually lives inside our bodies. Now to the Jew in in Paul's day, um, the temple was a a big deal. There really was no bigger deal when it comes to um, you know, offering glory to God and showing people about God. The temple was the place. And, and now the Christians are starting to say, no, the temple is not just a place. It is in us. Your body is, in fact, a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you trace Paul's argument about the body, kind of the physical nature of, of how offering ourselves to, to Christ, how important that is, all the way through Romans, you find some really fascinating stuff. Uh, let me just point out a little bit to you. Romans chapter 3, um, if you want to turn back, I'll read it to you as well. But Romans chapter 3 verse 12 is when Paul is still describing sin. And he's kind of going on and on about how all of us sin and all of us fall short of the glory of God. And this is the way he describes it in Romans 3 12. He says, all have turned away and they have together become worthless. worthless. They're There is no one who does good, not even one. Thank you for that cheery news. But then he says this: He says, Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so the argument is if, if for Paul, the old sinful life was tied up with the things of the body, then the new life in Christ also should be tied up in our physical bodies, right? Our throats, our lips, our mouths, our feet, our eyes, they used to be instruments of sin. But Paul says now in this relationship, they become, a, uh, they become a, an instrument of his glory, so when you think about this life of Christian devotion and offering your body, uh, just real quickly, three things kind of jumped off the page to me. Um, first is that it's voluntary. You guys, you get to make the choice. God is likely not going to force you to offer your body. But every morning you wake up and you can say this, God, I offer myself to you. God, I offer my body to you. And it's voluntary. Second thing is it, it's, it's personal, right? It's, it's, it's your body. It's the, the maybe the thing that we have to offer the most. And we can voluntarily make that personal choice. And then finally, it's complete. He says, you're a living sacrifice. Had to go into it, but remember what happens to the sacrifice in the Old Testament? They give all, they give 100%. Now we're living sacrifices, which means we can crawl on and off uh, the altar. But the idea is it is voluntary, it is personal, and it is complete. So Paul says, man, I want you to get to the point where you can just walk in the will of God because it's good and it's pleasing. One of the ways you do that is just every day, offer your body to me. But he knows that it's not just that. He knows that it's more. And so he says also this, he says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. Paul says, you got to live differently in the, the way you think, the way you act. It should be different from the world around us. Now, for years, this verse, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, has been a preacher's favorite verse because this is the, you know, hey, no sex, drugs, and rock and roll verse because you can say, you know, those are the patterns of the world and, um, you know, and you know the saying, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't date a girl, don't date girls that do kind of thing. So preachers love to, to, you know, use these verses. Now, that idea of living a pure and a holy life Is So important. We are the bride of Christ that we would live pure and holy that the way that we actually live out our lives is true but to make the patterns of the world only about those outward physical things I think is to somehow miss the point because when Paul talks about the patterns of the world he's talking about the values, the thought pattern, the way you approach life these last six weeks, we've been in this We Still Believe series. It has been all about calling out these are some of the patterns of the world and how do we live in a, a grace-filled but a truthful way uh, that doesn't conform to the pattern of, of this, this world. And, and, and I would just encourage you this week, one way to kind of live this out is maybe as a as a family or in your community group or something like this, to think through what are the patterns of the world that you find yourself being pressured to conform into? What are, what are some of the patterns and the thinking and the values that you just kind of feel yourself sometimes being conformed into. I just took a a couple minutes this week and jotted down some ones um, for me and let me just share them with you. When I think about some of the patterns of the world that come chasing after me sometimes, um, one of it is just selfishness. And not just this selfishness, but this self-importance, like my agenda and my thoughts and my stuff is the most important. And that's not a Christian pattern. That is the pattern of the world to say self is most important. Greed. Greed for years has been the pattern of the world busyness and distraction, you know, this little thing that we carry around all the time just tethered to us is a pattern of the world because it says I've always got to be checking. I've always got to be these things. And that pattern of the world keeps me from experiencing the still small quiet voice of God that I'm not going to find when I'm just flipping through those things. So how can I quiet that pattern of the world in my life? I think of the polarization and kind of the tribalism that we live under these days. That's a pattern of the world. It's a deep pattern of the world right now that I think Christians need to recognize that we're being forced to conform into that. And we need to say, I'm not going to be conformed into that. To see even arguing over things like masks and vaccines in a way that is dividing families and dividing churches and dividing communities. That's a pattern of the world. It's not God's pattern. You can have opinions on those things. I'm not saying you, you don't care about those things. But there, there's gotta be a, a way to, to take up the mantle that Jesus gives the church as peacemakers and to engage not in a divisive way, but in a way that's gonna really spread the good news of Jesus. Maybe along those lines, judgmentalism is a pattern of the world. And it is rampant these days. Discontent is a pattern of the world. And, and I could go on and on. Those were six of them that I just jotted down as I was kind of thinking through this in my life. Um, I'd encourage you to think through that as well. What are those patterns? Um, but as I was doing that, and just in my own personal devotions, I was um, reading in Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, there's that great passage where Jesus starts to turn his face towards Jerusalem because that's where he's gonna go and he's gonna lay down his life. And he says, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm gonna lay down my life. They're gonna put me on a cross. And Peter, the most outspoken disciple says, no, Jesus, they'll never do that to you. You should never be humble and sacrifice. You should be great and honored. And do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? He says, Peter, get behind me. Satan, which seems like kind of a harsh thing to say to your friend. I would encourage you not to say it just like that. <laughs> but you know what Jesus is saying? Peter, you're bringing the pattern of the world to me. I'm not going to be conformed to the pattern of the world that says I am to be lifted up. He says, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm here to do God's mission, which in that case was to lay down his life and to serve and to sacrifice. And so when we, when we think about the patterns of the world, we've got to have some of this get behind me, Satan sort of attitude. Because God's got a great will for us. It's a good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so we got to offer our bodies. And we don't want to be conformed into the pattern of the world. And then finally, uh, he says, uh, you got to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As they say in certain circles, you've got to get rid of that stinking thinking. Right? That stinking thinking that just messes up the way that that, that, uh, we think and the way that we live. Um, And so let our minds be transformed with the good things of God. That idea transformed, maybe you've heard this before, it's the Greek word like metamorphosis. It means that I'm completely transformed. The old is gone, the new has come. And the way that we transform our minds, because this is so important, is we watch what goes into our mind. That we fill ourselves with God's word. Whatever's good, whatever's pleasing, whatever noble, those kind of things. That's what we fill ourselves with. And that transforms our minds. And then you know what happens at that point? That kind of relationship with God leads you to the place where you can begin to pursue living in God's will. And I think a lot of us, when we think about God's will, maybe we think it's kind of like medicine. Like I'm going to take God's will because I know it's good for me, right? It's probably not going to taste very good. I'm not going to really like it very much, but I know it's, it's good for me. So I'm going to pursue God's will. Friends, that could not be farther from the truth to live and to walk in that kind of relationship where God's will becomes a part of your life. When you delight yourself in the Lord and your heart is changed and you can live out the desires of your heart, you know what it says? It says, God's will is good. And not only is it good, it's pleasing. Even more than that, it is perfect, right? When we get these things out, this is God's opportunity to bless us in an incredible way, in a good, pleasing, and perfect way. Not easy, but good, pleasing, and perfect way. I wanna wrap this whole message up by sharing uh, uh, an example example of it that i of this uh that i just saw in a really clear way this week i mean it just it just Jumped off the page to me. And it, uh, it happened on Tuesday night here at church. Um, and Tuesday night is the night that we have our Celebrate Recovery group here at church. And Celebrate Recovery is just a great group of people working through some of the hurts, habits, addictions, hangups of life. And so there's just a great spirit in this room as people are coming together. And often, or almost always, at Celebrate Recovery, there's a, a testimony. And someone gives a testimony to this is how God's helping me or this is where I'm at kind of thing. And this Tuesday, there was a testimony, but it was a surprise testimony and it was different and nobody expected it. And so the the deal was this. Many of you have had a chance to meet uh, uh, Steve Plath and even heard some of Steve's story. Steve is our director of recovery ministries and men's ministries. And uh, Steve's story that he shared in many venues before is um, up to about 15 years ago, he he really struggled with alcohol and the addiction to, to alcohol that impacted really all of his life. He might not have wanted to admit it, but it impacted all of his, all of his life. And one of the places that it most deeply impacted was his, his family. And so at that time, Steve had three little ones, um, Aaron and Nathan and Claire, um, and the family was struggling. In fact, I'll be honest, and we've talked about this before, they sat in my office 15 years ago and, and I, didn't think it was gonna, I didn't think they were gonna make it. This, this was not gonna happen. And in view of God's mercy, Steve started to offer his body as a living sacrifice to God. And he said, man, I got I to I change this. And he started to work his steps. And then he said, you know what else? Man, I've got to transform my thinking. And so I began to renew his mind by the things that he's focused on, the things that he pours his life into. He, he doesn't want to conform any longer to the patterns of the world. And so these are the lies that I've been living. And for the last 14 and a half years, by God's grace, um, Steve has 14 and a half year, years now of sobriety. That 14 and a half years of sobriety not only changed his sobriety, but it changed his family. It, it made a huge difference. Because God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. So on Tuesday night, Steve didn't even know this. It was all set up as a surprise. Who walks out to give the testimony but Steve's family. And when the four of them were standing up there saying this story of this disease used to have my husband and then these things happened and now it is a new deal. That is the good, pleasing, and perfect will. There was not a dry eye in the place as we sat and we watched this story to see what God can do when he transforms a life. And then what happens is... In this case, that family was restored and built back up, and that is good, and that is pleasing, and that is the perfect will of God. Hey, I want to just give you a chance to see a couple minutes of this this story. We actually brought uh, Steve's wife, Cammie, and uh, his daughter, Claire, who's heading off to college this week, um, in to share some of their story. So let's watch just a little bit of that. I'm Cammie. I'm
3: Claire. And this this is is our story. story. Steve Plath is my husband, and we've been married almost 28 years together since we were 17. And to say that we've been through a lot is an understatement. There was something in Steve that I saw from day one that was so special, and I knew he loved God, but he wasn't walking with him. His addiction and alcoholism increased, and my codependency increased. I was very codependent, and that helped facilitate the downfall of our marriage as much as his addiction and his alcoholism did. Um, We had a great house, we had what would look like a great life. We abode, we went on vacations, all these things that we thought we wanted, but we weren't happy. We thought we were, but we weren't fully. I had wanted to try to leave the marriage for a while, but I didn't know how. And I was essentially just waiting for my moment. I felt that we would not be together. I felt like we were better off apart and the kids were definitely better off apart. The turning point for Steve was that he fully embraced his sobriety. He fully started the 12 steps he got a sponsor, but most importantly, he surrendered to Jesus completely. I went and got the help that I needed for myself and for the kids, but Steve was the one that took the lead in trying to change and try to live for the Lord. God has transformed our marriage in ways that I never thought possible because Steve seeks to live out his sobriety and live out his faith every single day i'm the youngest out of three and i just
2: wanted to build on what my mom said that i didn't see that side of my dad i saw him after he was sober and after he went through all of the work to be there for my family and the house that i was raised in was full of open communication where you could sit down and talk about how you're feeling and my dad honestly led that for us that's the type of dad he is and that is something that is super important to me and and i'm just super blessed to say the least to be raised in a family like that because i did not see my dad as who he was before when he was working towards sobriety or when he wasn't sober and that is something i am just happy to be able to share
0: well, that's just a little bit about that. And Aaron and, and Nathan would say the same thing. They've seen the power of God to transform a life. And I share that story, not even to highlight anyone in particular, but to give you hope and to call you out. If you're feeling, if you're in that stuck place, And not only I don't know which direction to go, but I don't feel like I'm living in the, the life and the purpose and the will that God has for me. It begins with a relationship, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's not easy. Every day we offer ourselves. Every day we get rid of that thinking. Every day we transform our mind. And God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is there for you as well. Let me pray as we wrap up. God, I thank you so much for the power of that story to see your scripture lived out in such a practical and a very real way. The words that you inspired Paul to write almost 2,000 years ago have worked themselves out on the streets of Lodi these last 15 years, and we thank you for that. And I pray for more and more of that. I pray for the, those that are here this morning that are feeling kind of stuck, and whether it's an addiction or, or just a way that they're living that just is, is not the will that you have for them. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the power and the strength by your gospel, to turn to you and to receive the grace and the love and the truth that will point them to a good, pleasing, and perfect relationship with you. Lord, work in our church, work in our lives. We love you and we give ourselves to you. Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.